Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, it's my pleasure to host and moderate today's book forum discussing America's coming war with China, a collision course over Taiwan, with, my, with the author, my colleague and friend, Ted Galen Carpenter. Uh, I'm Christopher Preble, by the way, Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. And uh, it is an honor and privilege to welcome so many of you here and those of you watching me from uh, afar. Welcome also to our commentators, Richard Bush, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and Director of the Center for Northeast Asian Policy Studies. We're also expecting Clyde Prestowitz, uh, President and Founder of the Economic Strategy Institute. Uh, we're not quite sure where Clyde is, but we're tracking him down as we speak. Um, also, let me thank, before I forget, our conference staff here at Cato, uh, the interns that help them out. They've done a great uh, job. They always do. And uh, these events would not be possible without all their hard work, and I appreciate it very much. Um, I want to say just a few words about this book before I introduce the author. And I had a privilege of reading an early draft of this, uh, of this book, and I did consider it a privilege, uh, but it was not really a pleasure. Now, now, let me stress, before Ted reconsiders his decision to thank me in the acknowledgments or simply boots me off the stage, let me explain. He, he wrote a very nice little personal inscription in my copy, too, so he may want to scratch that out. But let me explain what I mean by that. A privilege, but not a pleasure. We live, as we all know, in a very uncertain time. Uh, the mystique of American power is slipping away by the day, and yet too few people contemplate what this means for, for our conduct of world affairs. They haven't taken account of this reality. There's Clyde. With respect to U.S. foreign policy in Asia, and specifically pertaining to China and Taiwan, our conduct has been guided for many years, more than 20 years, by an, by an ambiguity, something that is neither here nor there, something short of a formal defense of Taiwanese independence, but equally dismissive of the competing position, the PRC's assertion of one China that views Taiwan as part and parcel of the mainland. Instead, we've muddled along on a middle course, neither sovereignty nor reunification, all the while assuming the status quo would endure until the problem went away. As Ted demonstrates in this book, there are ample grounds for doubting that it will. Indeed, the Taiwan issue shows little sign of lasting improvement and many signs that it is worsening. It's extremely difficult, even painful, to squarely and honestly discuss U.S.-China-Taiwan relations and it is to Ted's great credit that he has not shied away from a controversial and difficult subject. But then again, he never has. I thank him for writing such a timely and relevant book, and it really is an honor to introduce him today. I will introduce Ted first. He will speak, and then I will introduce our two commentators after Ted has finished speaking. Ted Galen Carpenter is the author of seven books, including America's Coming War with China, and editor of ten others all related to international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. In addition to America's coming war with China, Ted also co-wrote The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, published in 2004, Peace and Freedom, Foreign Policy for a Constitutional Republic, and A Search for Enemies, America's Alliances After the Cold War. He is also the author of more than 350 articles in policy studies. His articles have appeared in New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, and many other publications, including uh, uh, foreign policy publications such as Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, National Interest, and the World Policy Journal. He's a frequent guest on radio and television programs, both in the United States and around the world. Dr. Carpenter received his Ph.D. in U.S. Diplomatic History from the University of Texas. He is a contributing editor to the National Interest 
and he serves on the editorial boards of Mediterranean Quarterly and the Journal of Strategic Studies. Ted Carpenter. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, my apologies for giving my presentation from a uh, sitting position, but about two weeks ago I had an encounter with the stairs at my house, and an encounter I lost decisively. Uh, managed to break my ankle in three places, so my mobility is, uh, shall we say, somewhat limited for the next few weeks. I certainly owe a debt of gratitude to many people who uh, made this book possible. Uh, my publisher, Anthony Wall at Palgrave, uh, shepherded this uh, process uh, quite ably. Uh, Chris Preble, of course, for uh, his comments on an earlier draft of this book uh, and uh, organizing the uh, book forum today. My research assistant, Justin Logan, who did a tremendous amount of work on this book and offered uh, a lot of insightful comments. Justin has uh, in recent months been promoted from research assistant to uh, the position of foreign policy analyst, a promotion that was uh, definitely earned. And most of all, I want to thank my wife, Barbara, for her unflagging support during this project and so many others over the years. When my publisher and I discussed the book title, I was a little bit apprehensive about it because I thought it, there was a great danger that it would convey the wrong impression that what I was arguing uh, was akin to the neoconservative thesis that China is a, an emerging dire threat and that it is about to take over the world. Uh, that is not the case at all. That is certainly not my attitude. Indeed, I regard the uh, PRC as a conventional great power with rather typical aims. Ultimately, of course, its aim is to become the leading power in its region, and that's not exceptional. Great powers have uh, gone down that path many, many times over the centuries, and China is, is no exception. I want to emphasize that I do not see China as a malignantly expansionist power like Nazi Germany was or the Soviet Union was. So we have a, a very different situation in terms of the USPRC relationship. And that relationship, for the most part, is on a sound footing. Obviously, we have a vitally important economic relationship that continues to grow year after year. We do have irritations in the relationship. I don't want to minimize those. Uh, certainly, the United States is not happy about uh, the Beijing government's record on human rights. Uh, China, we regard as uh, times a bit uh, casual about proliferation activities, missile proliferation uh, in particular. Uh, we worry about China's territorial claims to the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea and what that might uh, imply for the future. And China, for its part, uh, is uneasy about the uh, U.S. assertion of unilateral power and Washington's fondness with a strategy of regime change, forcible regime change. But it is almost impossible to imagine any of these issues 
leading to really serious confrontation between Washington and Beijing, much less to the danger of an armed conflict, with one exception, and that is the Taiwan issue. And unfortunately, that is a very, very big exception. The thesis of my book is fairly straightforward. It is that given current trends, trends that we have seen developing over the past decade or so on Taiwan and on the mainland, and given the nature of U.S. policy on the Taiwan issue, a very nasty confrontation is highly probable sometime within the next decade. Something needs to change to avoid that collision course. Either Taipei has to adjust its policy in a significant way, Beijing has to change its policy in a significant fashion, or Washington has to adjust its policy. But if nothing changes, if we're going the same direction we have been going since the mid-1990s, then I think we are in for a very dangerous situation, quite conceivably, including an armed conflict between the United States and China over the status of Taiwan. The book looks at a number of trends in Taiwan, and in particular the emergence of a very strong national identity over the past decade or so. One can see a great deal of evidence of this. I'm going to cite a couple of uh, extensive public opinion surveys that were done. One was done by one of Taiwan's leading universities and has been done continuously since the early 1990s. Respondents were asked whether they regarded themselves as Taiwanese only, as both Taiwanese and Chinese, or as Chinese only. In 1992, only 17% of respondents regarded themselves solely as Taiwanese, 26% regarded themselves as Chinese only, and 46% regarded themselves as both Chinese and Taiwanese. The remainder did not express an opinion. By 2004, the results in the same survey were very, very different. The Taiwanese only faction had nearly tied the dual identity response at 41%, while the Chinese only response had plummeted to 6%. That is a very graphic indicator of the development of a separatist national identity. Another public opinion survey done again by one of the leading institutes in Taiwan uh, looked at people who the author described as effectively pro-independence. That is to say they were in favor of independence for Taiwan regardless of the danger, regardless of the circumstances. Between 1992 and 2000, the number of effectively pro-independence respondents more than doubled from 13% to 
By contrast, the number of effectively pro-unification respondents, they're those who are in favor of ultimate reunification, again, regardless of circumstances, had shrunk from 45% to 24%. Again, a very dramatic shift in sentiment. The Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan has tapped into that growing sense of a separate identity and has done so very effectively, emerging as the uh, winner of the presidential election in a three-way race in 2000 and winning, albeit narrowly, in 2004 with President Chen Shui-bian winning re-election. It's also increasingly clear that President Chen understands the significance of this, as he put it, Taiwanese consciousness. In his latest New Year's address, he went out of his way to emphasize that point on several occasions. And he also emphasized that the fate of Taiwan is to be determined by the 23 million people of Taiwan and by them alone not by any diktat coming from Beijing. That's a very significant point, that Chen taps into this sense of a Taiwanese consciousness. After all, the Democratic Progressive Party had not fared very well in the December local elections, largely due to dissatisfaction about the economic performance of the country under uh, the Chen administration, and largely due to scandals involving corruption. It was not, in my judgment, a referendum on policy toward the mainland, and indeed Chen's strategy seems to be to have a political rebound by emphasizing the DPP's willingness to defend Taiwan's interests against the PRC. The fact that he regards that as the best strategy for political recovery is also very revealing. In addition to the growing strength of the DPP over the past decade and this clear growing sense of a distinct national identity, you're getting uh, evidence of uh, support for active defense measures, of developing military capabilities that can strike high-value targets on the mainland in the event that the PRC attempts to use coercive tactics against. Taiwan. That again shows a determination to defend Taiwan's de facto independence come what may. Now I will grant you the leadership of the Kuomintang Party, the KMT, and the People's First Party favor a somewhat more cautious strategy toward the mainland. But I think it is an illusion that if the KMT, for example, should win the presidency in 2008, that the Taiwan crisis is going to greatly recede. Any KMT leader would find himself under intense pressure to defend Taiwan's identity, to defend Taiwan's interests. And indeed, the election of a KMT president in 2008 might actually cause a rapid disillusionment in Beijing, because I think Beijing is expecting a big change in Taipei's policy if the KMT wins. The PRC leadership is likely to be disappointed on that score. Yes, the KMT 
a KMT government, I think, would be more cautious. But there are distinct limits about how many concessions even a KMT president would make. And then finally, with regard to Taiwan's attitude, there is the pervasive confidence in the U.S. security commitment. When I was in Taiwan in uh, this past July, that was something that struck me, that this was a confidence that extended across the political spectrum. There seemed to be no doubt whatever that the United States would defend Taiwan come what may. The attitude seemed to be that the United States would never abandon a vibrant democracy to a takeover by an authoritarian PRC. It's just not going to happen. And that means that the Taiwanese feel they can push the envelope on independence and get away with it. So those are the trends we see in Taiwan. And they are certainly indicative of the danger of a crisis. There are also worrisome trends on the mainland. Back in the 1980s, Deng Xiaoping once commented that the Taiwan issue could go on for a half century or more without Beijing being unduly concerned. Those days are long gone. That is not the prevailing attitude within the political elite in the PRC. We got an early indication of how things, how attitudes were changing with the publication of a new defense white paper in uh, 2000. The white paper, again, expressed the wish for a peaceful solution to the Taiwan issue. And I, I take the PRC's leadership at its word on that, by the way. I think they would certainly prefer that this matter be uh, handled peacefully. But the white paper also outlines circumstances in which the PRC would be justified in using force. Some of those conditions were familiar. If uh, Taiwan issued a formal declaration of independence, for example, or if another country, read the United States, interfered to the point where permanent separation seemed likely. But then there was a third condition that hadn't appeared in the PRC literature before. And that was if the Taiwanese authorities stalled indefinitely on reunification talks. That put out a marker that Beijing's patience was not unlimited. That at some point, reunification talks would have to take place and that there would have to be serious progress toward reunification or the military option would be on the table. This same attitude was reflected at an even higher level of authority with the passage of the anti-secession law by the National People's Congress in March of 2005. And Beijing is backing up its insistence on eventual reunification with some military muscle. We see the continued deployment of missiles across the strait from Taiwan, a deployment that now, by most estimates, exceeds 700 missiles, and uh, the PRC continues to add dozens of missiles each year. And we see it with the overall military modernization of the uh, Chinese military. The goal of the latter clearly seems to be to achieve parity with the United States in and around the Taiwan Strait. And it's amazing how many military analysts in the United States miss the point of what is going on in China. 
I don't think anyone in Beijing has the illusion that China can match the United States militarily on a global basis or even a, a Pacific basis. But it doesn't have to. Its number one agenda is to recover Taiwan, to erase that last emotional scar from China's period of humiliation in the 19th and early 20th centuries. To do that, it only needs to achieve a level of military capability in and around the Taiwan Strait that it can either fight the United States to a standoff or raise the cost to the United States to such a level that any American president would hesitate before fulfilling the implied commitment to defend Taiwan. And the PRC is very much on course, I think, to accomplish that level of ability within the next decade. There's no question that if a crisis took place over Taiwan today, the United States would prevail, although I think the cost to us might be a bit higher than a lot of people in this country assume even now. Fast forward a decade, it's likely to be a very dicey proposition for the United States to intervene against the PRC in its backyard. Now those who argue that my thesis is overwrought typically cite the importance of economics. They note the growing economic ties between, the Taiwan, between Taiwan and the mainland, and they say that's going to induce restraint on both sides. They also, the conventional wisdom is that the tremendous economic ties between China and the United States would also induce uh, caution on Beijing's part. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of economic ties, and I go into this in some detail in the book, both with regard to Taiwanese mainland economic ties and China-U.S. economic ties. These are very important factors for restraint. But economic realities are not always sufficient. Let's remember in 1914, France and Germany were each other's chief economic partners. From an economic standpoint, World War I was utter insanity. And it's true, a military confrontation regarding Taiwan would be economically disastrous for both Taiwan and the mainland and would certainly be economically very unpleasant for the United States as well. And if we can assume that policymakers always act solely as rational economic actors, then we could pretty well dismiss the danger of war over Taiwan. But when it comes to raw nationalist emotions, they often overwhelm rational economic calculations. And that, in my judgment, is the big danger with regard to the Taiwan issue. Let's also remember that when it comes to the economic relationship between the United States and China, that the leverage is not just one way, namely U.S. leverage over China. Because of the chronic U.S. federal budget deficits, China is rapidly becoming America's chief banker. That gives China a good deal of leverage over the United States. And again, 
a factor that might cause an American president to be rather cautious. Given the trends on Taiwan and the mainland, I think the importance of U.S. policy goes without saying. But unfortunately, we have an ambiguous policy that borders on being a muddled policy. Through the Taiwan Relations Act, we have a commitment to help Taiwan defend itself. We have an explicit commitment to, def to sell Taiwan arms of a defensive nature. Beyond that, we are to regard any attempt at coercion by the PRC against Taiwan as a grave breach of the peace of East Asia. And the implication is the United States would not react well to this. Now note this is short, however, of an explicit defense commitment. At the same time, we have this implicit commitment to defend Taiwan. We do not dispute Beijing's one China policy, that there is one China and Taiwan is part of China. The assumption is that eventually people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait will work things out. This is the policy that has been described in the past as one of strategic ambiguity. Now, the Bush administration hates that term, but the reality is the substance remains the same. It is a policy of strategic ambiguity. And it is based on an assumption that Beijing and Taipei will both read our ambiguous policy in exactly the way we want them to read it. That is to say, Taipei will assume that the U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan is not unconditional and that therefore Taiwan's government better be cautious, whereas Beijing will assume that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense and therefore Beijing had better be cautious on the issue. It reminds me very much of the old joke involving playwright George Bernard Shaw and uh, a, a rather famous female dancer at the time who approached Shaw and said, oh, Mr. Shaw, we ought to get married. Think of the children we would produce with my looks and your brains. And Shaw said, well, yes, madam, but what would happen if the poor child ended up with my looks and your brains? I worry about a mirror image read of America's policy of strategic ambiguity. In other words, that the Taiwanese will assume they have an unlimited, absolutely reliable commitment and that therefore they can push the envelope on independence. Whereas Beijing will conclude, particularly as the PRC's economic and military power grows, that the U.S. is bluffing, that the U.S. will not really go to war to defend Taiwan. And it doesn't matter if those readings are correct or not. If that's what those governments conclude, they will act accordingly and the result could be disastrous. Now, what is the nature of U.S. policy? Well, we have a couple of explanations and I hope that things will be clear after this. A senior administration official on the eve of President uh, Bush's December 2003 rebuke to Taiwan for trying to make unilateral changes in the status quo was the following, and I quote, what you're seeing here is the dropping of the ambiguity for both sides because we cannot sort of imply to the Taiwan side that we're sort of agnostic towards moves toward Taiwan independence. But at the same time, 
we've got to make it clear to the Chinese that this is not a green light for you to contemplate the use of force or coercion against Taiwan, unquote. Well, if you're still in a little bit of doubt about the nature of U.S. policy, uh, former Assistant Secretary of State James Kelly, when he was Assistant Secretary, offered the following explanation to a, uh, the House Committee on International Relations. He stated that he had, quote, made the point of one China, and I really did not define it. I'm not sure that I very easily could define it. I can tell you what it's not. It is not the one China principle that Beijing suggests, and it may not be the definition that some would have it in Taiwan, but it does convey a meaning of solidarity of a kind among the people on both sides of the strait that has been our policy for a very long time. Now, this sort of thing gives incoherence a bad name. It's bad enough to keep your client or your potential adversary guessing about your policy, but this suggests that American officials themselves are not very clear on what U.S. policy is, and that is profoundly dangerous. The bottom line is that we have the likelihood of a collision course. Taiwan is pushing the envelope on independence in a multitude of ways, both large and small. At the same time, Beijing is growing increasingly impatient, even with the status quo, much less with the machinations of Chen Shui-bian's government. The U.S. is caught in the middle with a policy that could easily lead to miscalculation by Taipei, Beijing, or both capitals. Now, I think there is a way out of the dilemma. Now, we can, of course, hope that there might be a big change in policy in either Taipei or Beijing, that the Taiwanese eventually give up on the goal of formal independence and decide to cut the best deal they can on reunification, having a status similar to that of Hong Kong but with enhanced autonomy, or that a new and hopefully democratic government emerges in Beijing one that would say to the Taiwanese, look, it's, it's up to you to decide whether you want reunification or whether you want independence, and we will respect your wishes. That, either of those options, is a possibility, but not a very good possibility. And the key is we don't control policy in Beijing, and we don't have all that much clout in policy in Taipei. What we do control is our own policy, and that is where we ought to look to make the principal change to prevent a, co a collision. What I have suggested in the book is that we regard Taiwan, that we recognize Taiwan as a peripheral, not a vital U.S. security interest. In other words, not an interest that is worth incurring the risk of war against a nuclear-armed PRC. That kind of risk should only be incurred for core vital interests. In an operational sense with regard to Taiwan, that means that we should continue arms sales to Taiwan and perhaps even be more liberal with those arms sales, but that we make it clear to the Taiwanese that they do not have a security commitment from the United States, that we will not go to war with all the, the peril that, is, that involves to defend Taiwan's de facto independence, much less anything more ambitious.
With that reality, the Taiwanese would then have to make their own decisions about policy based on the knowledge that whatever course they choose, they do so at their own risk. Above all, the United States would reduce the risk of being entangled in a disastrous confrontation with a nuclear-armed great power. And that needs to be the primary focus of American policy. I personally wish the Taiwanese well. I have great affection for the Taiwanese people and for the vibrant democratic capitalist system that they have developed over the years. In a perfect world, Beijing would adopt a more reasonable policy and would probably accept Taiwan with the status that, let's say, Canada has to, with the United States. But we don't live in a perfect world. And given the emotions on the mainland, I think it's highly improbable that any PRC government, even ultimately a democratic one, will give up the claim to Taiwan. There are too many raw emotions involved. Therefore, the United States better be the one to change its policy to avoid the collision. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ted. Now I'm uh, pleased to welcome two distinguished speakers to comment on Ted's book and, and possibly on Ted's comments today. Our first speaker is Richard Bush, uh, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and director of its Center for Northeast Asian Policy Studies. Dr. Bush came to Brookings in t July 2002 after serving almost five years as the chairman and managing director of the American Institute in Taiwan. He began his professional career in 1977 with the China Council of the Asia Society. He worked for 12 years on Capitol Hill, chiefly with the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And in July 1995, he became National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and a member of the National Intelligence Council, where he served until September 1997. Dr. Bush holds degrees from Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, and did graduate work in political science at Columbia University, earning a P, uh, MA in 1973 and a PhD in 1978. He's the author of a number of articles on U.S. relations with China and Taiwan and of At Cross Purposes, a book of essays on the history of America's relations with Taiwan. In July of last year, Brookings uh, published his study on cross-strait relations entitled Untying the Knot, Making Peace in the Taiwan Straits. Uh, to Richard's left is Clyde Prestowitz, founder and president of the Economic Strategy Institute, a Washington think tank influential in the areas of international trade policy. Clyde is the author of several best-selling books, including Trading Places and Rogue Nation. His most recent book, Three Billion New Capitalists, The Great Shift of Wealth and Power to the West, to the West, <laughs> deals with East, to the East, deals with the economic rise. See, I read the book. See, Clyde, I read it. Uh, deals with the economic rise of Asia and the upcoming rebalancing of the world economic order and its impact on the United States. Prior to founding ESI, Clyde served as counselor to the Secretary of Commerce in the Reagan administration. He was a senior executive with American Can Company and Scott Paper Company in the United States and globally. He served as vice chairman of the President's Committee on Trade and Investment in the Pacific and on several corporate advisory boards. He holds degrees from Swarthmore College, the University of Hawaii, and the Wharton Graduate School of Business. He also studied at Keio University in Tokyo. He's fluent in Japanese, Dutch, German, and French, none of which I presume he will be using today. Uh, speaking first today is Richard Bush. Richard. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be invited. Uh, Ted Carpenter's book uh, covers a lot of ground and should be read by anybody who cares about Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait issue. Uh, I particularly commend him for including a lot of analysis by uh, Taiwan scholars. 
they do not get as much uh, credit and attention as they deserve. Uh, I also commend him for making some truly provocative policy recommendations. Uh, there, are a lot, there are a lot of issues that I could cover. Um, I would like to uh, dwell on the fact that uh, the PRC really has not a, made a, a proposal on unification that anybody in Taiwan deems worthy of consideration, but uh, I'll sort of leave that alone. I'd like to make three points. Um, first of all, although the current cross-strait situation is relatively calm, I agree completely with Ted's conclusion that there remains a danger of war through miscalculation uh, in spite of economics. Um, I differ somewhat on how it might happen. He imagines a scenario where Taiwan presses for independence uh, because it believes it has a blank check from the United States. Uh, Beijing uh, attacks the island in the belief that uh, Washington is bluffing. Um, and because uh, Taipei is engaged in provocative behavior. I'm more taken by the possibility of misinterpretation and miscalculation between Beijing and Taipei. Uh, let's assume for purposes of discussion that Beijing's military goal is to deter Taiwan from independence and not coercing it into negotiating on its terms, although that might increasingly be Beijing's goal. Um, if all Beijing had to worry about was a 1776 style declaration of independence by Taiwan, then its job would be easy because either you declare independence or you don't. But a long time ago, Taiwan's leaders announced that uh, they wouldn't declare independence because Taiwan's already independent. Uh, that's, there's a complicated nuance there. Uh, but uh, we won't go into that. So Beijing has to remain vigilant for actions by Taiwan that are the functional equivalents of independence. Uh, the problem becomes then that it's very impossible, very difficult to draw a clear line between what's Taiwan independence for Beijing's purposes and what is not. Uh, and evaluating what is and what isn't becomes very objective. So if Beijing's conditions for the use of force are too specific, then Taiwan might grab everything up to the line um, except that which is, which is clearly specified. If they're too general, then Taiwan doesn't know what actions to avoid. Um, if Beijing and Taipei each have their own understanding of uh, what the lines mean according to their respective logics, uh, then uh, instability uh, results. Um, the best example of the ambiguity under which China and Taiwan uh, operates, uh, operate is the anti-secession law that the PRC's National People's Congress passed in March of last year. Now, it makes a certain amount of sense for China's leaders to err on the side of ambiguity. Um, they have to react to a political uh, environment, a democratic Taiwan that they're not really familiar with and which constantly changes. They can't really gauge the significance of each of the myriad political initiatives that emerge on the island. Is it a campaign to uh, advance the legal separation of the island from China forever, or is, or is it just another appeal by politicians to their supporters? But if deterrence is China's goal, I think too much ambiguity can be a dangerous thing. Um, although the heart of deterrence is preserving peace by using the threat of force to shape your adversary's intentions, China both will not and cannot state in advance what Taiwan actions would trigger a war. That's because it cannot in advance evaluate how threatening to China's interests future Taiwan initiatives might be. At the same time, 
Taiwan cannot know what actions might lead China's leaders to decide that force is useful, what actions on its part. Uh, moreover, the island's political dynamics can produce actions by Taiwan that China may decide after the fact are a threat to its interests. Perhaps Chinese leaders have overestimated the political threat that Taiwan poses to China's objective of unification, and Taiwan's leaders have underestimated the risk that their actions and China's threat perceptions pose. So in short, although the current situation is rather stable, there does remain some degree of danger that leaders and of China and Taiwan will find it hard to avoid the brink of war because they really are unclear where that brink is. My second point, I don't believe that the United States has been as ambiguous as Ted suggests on whether it will come to the defense of Taiwan. Now, this is a little bit self-serving for me to say because I was involved for a while in sort of the work of, of trying to sort of um, sort of express clarity on U.S. policy, uh, but uh, let me sort of make the case. Now, does Washington sometimes convey mixed messages? Certainly. Um, I think the fall of 2003 was one of those times with some unfortunate consequences. Do we sometimes create a blank check problem with Taiwan? Perhaps, although I think with the right kind of communication that can be avoided. Uh, it is true that even if we're doing our best to be clear, um, our messages always don't work at once. Uh, we sometimes have to strike our balance over time. And sometimes those on the other end of the message are not doing their part, which is listening carefully. I mean, they have a responsibility too. But I, I do think that one should not draw conclusions about whether the United States will use force to defend Taiwan against a PRC attack based solely on public statements alone. Uh, that, I believe, is the flaw in much of the academic analysis about, quote-unquote, strategic ambiguity. Um, for much of this discussion only scratches the surface of American policy. If, hypothetically, Washington informs Beijing privately that it will defend Taiwan under any circumstance, China is under no illusion about U.S. intentions even if our public statements are vague. And if again, hypothetically, Taipei is informed or learns of our statement, then there's no ambiguity whatsoever where it matters. Uh, moreover, it is the task of American diplomacy uh, to interpret how past public statements uh, apply in any new set of circumstances. S Moreover, uh, to the extent that U.S. statements about the use of force shape Beijing's and Taipei's intentions, what's important is not what Washington says, but how others interpret its statements. So if the United States is publicly vague, but Beijing concludes in its heart of hearts that America will defend Taiwan under any circumstances and is more prudent as a result, then stability uh, is strengthened. Now, I think it's possible to draw an interesting inference concerning Beijing's understanding of U.S. intentions from its military procurements in preparation for a Taiwan contingency. Um, and um, these are very clear. Um, we can see that they're preparing not only to attack Taiwan, but to block 
American intervention in the aid of Taiwan when they do attack or if they do attack. China would not be spending billions of dollars for that latter purpose if it was in any um, uncertainty about what the United States was going to do. Now, with respect to Taiwan's belief about uh, whether the United States is going to come to its defense, I would argue that what's important is not what the Taiwan public as a whole believes or even what the Taiwan political class believes. It, it's what Taiwan leaders believe, Taiwan, what Taiwan sort of the Taiwan military command believes, and therefore, and their um, um, communication between our two leaderships is most important. Um, you know, the situation there uh, is not perfect, but I think uh, it's something that, that our government is working on all the time, and sort of private is more important than public. Uh, my third and final sort of point is about Ted's policy prescription, which uh, regrettably is a policy wonk like myself, for, for a policy wonk like myself, takes up less than three and a half pages. Uh, I would have sort of hungered, I do hunger for much more. Um, the proposal is that the United States should abandon one of the prongs of its two-pronged policy regarding Taiwan security. We should continue to sell arms and explicitly renounce any intention to come to Taiwan's defense. Now. I have concerns about this proposal. Let me express them as questions. First of all, can the Taiwan political system mobilize the budgetary resources to acquire sufficient defense capabilities to deter a PRC attack and defend the island should deterrence fail? Look at the numbers. According to the best estimates available, the PRC spends 60 to $90 billion a year on defense. Taiwan spends 7.5 billion a year on defense. That is probably an order of magnitude less than China. According to the Pentagon, China spends up to $3 billion a year on advanced military equipment from Russia alone. That is, China's annual foreign procurement budget may equal half of Taiwan's total defense budget. Some of the systems that threaten Taiwan, such as ballistic missiles, are produced indigenously. So there's some question that Taiwan can provide the resources to acquire the capabilities for an independent self-defense. Second, how precisely is the United States to manage the transition away from its security commitment, particularly if Taiwan is an open democratic system and China would be able to observe what's going on? Uh, in an ideal world, Taiwan should be allowed a decent interval to build up its military power to prepare for the day that the U.S. security commitment uh, ends. Uh, setting aside the question of whether it has the ability to do that, would it have the will? Third, is the end of the defense commitment politically feasible in the United States? Ted's correct that the TRA doesn't represent a treaty-like legal, legally binding commitment. It's more of a political pledge. Um, so any American president who wanted to abandon that security commitment would have to build a consensus to do so. Uh, I can guess what would happen to a Democratic president who tried. Uh, I expect that a Republican president would have similar problems. Um, fourth, let's assume that the U.S. abandoned its security commitment to Taiwan um, and the civilian and military leaders of the island then decided that they could not adequately defend their country by conventional means. 
would it then be permissible for them to acquire nuclear weapons in the associated delivery systems in order to have an adequate deterrent? How would the United States respond to that development? Would there be sufficient time to acquire such a deterrent before the PRC preemptively act, uh, attack to prevent it? Um, fifth, is it not likely that the leaders and public of Taiwan on hearing that the U.S. would abandon its security commitment and realizing the difficulties of creating an independent defense would simply sue for peace and try to get the best deal uh, that they could. Um, finally, if the U.S. government should consider such a decision, what role should the Taiwan government and the Taiwan people play in it? Um, we've made a number of decisions in the past uh, affecting the government of the Republic of China or the people of Taiwan or both um, without consulting them. Would we do so again, particularly since Taiwan's now a democracy? And finally, what uh, would be the effect of all of the above on our security uh, position in Asia? Um, I've said enough. Thank you very much. I pass the baton to Carl Prestowitz, Clyde Prestowitz. <coughs> Thank you, and um, let me start by congratulating Ted on, um, I think, a, a very important contribution to a very important question. And uh, with typical courage, Ted has attacked it head on. Um, I begin from the starting point of asking, you know, what are America's major vital interests. And I begin with the view that um, I agree with Ted. I don't think that China is uh, a malignantly expansionist or aggressive power. Uh, it seems to me that there's no um, inherent reason, no fundamental conflict between the United States and China. Uh, it seems to me that the United States has an enormous, an absolutely vital, fundamental, enormous interest in avoiding a war with China, in avoiding even a repetition of the kind of Cold War that we had with the Soviet Union, um, and in fact in bringing China into the global system uh, as a, uh, a partner and as a constructive member of the global economy and, and the community of nations. That seems to me to be a fundamentally uh, vital American interest. Then I ask the question, what is America's interest in Taiwan? How important is the U.S. interest in Taiwan? Well, clearly it's important. Uh, it's a commitment and a relationship that we've had for a very long time. Uh, but I also ask the question, what's the relative importance of Taiwan as compared to uh, for the United States as compared to the importance of Taiwan to China. Uh, and this is by way of getting to the question, what is America willing to sacrifice for Taiwan? How many, ultimately this issue gets down to how many American boys and girls 
are we prepared to sacrifice for Taiwan? Um, and a way of, of looking at that question, this, this may strike you as slightly odd, but, but one kind of mental exercise that, that might help uh, in looking at that question is to think of the Hawaiian Islands. Um, there's, uh, one of the Hawaiian Islands is uninhabited, Kaho'olawe. It's uh, just across the Maui Straits from Maui. It's been used by the U.S. Navy historically as a, as a bombing target. Uh, recently, that's been stopped. And uh, actually, the island is much discussed in Hawaii because in recent years, uh, a fairly uh, active Hawaiian uh, homeland movement has gotten underway. You may recall that in the early years of the 20th century, uh, the Hawaiian Islands were an independent kingdom, and uh, a coup was organized by American planters in the islands at that time uh, who petitioned the Congress to make it a territory. And so the Hawaiian kingdom was pushed aside. The last queen, Lilio Kalani, was pushed aside. Uh, and Hawaii became a territory of the United States uh, without consulting the indigenous Hawaiian population, nothing democratic about it. Uh, and in recent years, the, uh, the uh, descendants of these native Hawaiians have uh, formed a political movement uh, which contemplates independence. Uh, and in fact, there have been uh, some Hawaiians who've sailed out to Koho'olawe uh, and discussion of uh, raising the Hawaiian flag on Kaho'olawe uh, and declaring independence. Now imagine that that were to happen. It's not, it's not inconceivable that that would happen and the, so the, the old flag of the old kingdom of Hawaii is raised on Kaho'olawe and they declare independence. Uh, this of course uh, only a few miles from Pearl Harbor and, and the headquarters of uh, Sinkpak. One can imagine that the governor might call out the National Guard, or one could imagine that the president might call out the Navy uh, to remove this nuisance. And then imagine that uh, the Chinese government issues uh, a press release uh, declaring that it's sending its Navy to the Maui Straits uh, in support of the independent movement of, uh, of, the, uh, of the native Hawaiians. Now, I understand it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, again, I pose that question in the context of the relative importance of Taiwan to the United States as opposed to the relative importance of Taiwan to China, and what is the United States prepared to sacrifice uh, in the defense of an independent uh, Taiwan? Uh, I also raise that question in the context of, again, America's interest in China because I don't have to tell this audience that the United States has an enormous and growing interest in China and, as Ted pointed out, dependence on China. Um, the U.S. is dependent on China both for uh, supply of, of uh, vital products uh, and obviously for funding the U.S. current account deficit. So the, the, uh, the cost to the United States of tension uh, with China over Taiwan or conflict with China over Taiwan 
uh, could be very substantial, both economically as well as militarily and politically, which suggests that um, while we have an interest in Taiwan, the ideal progression for the United States would be a progression in the in a direction in which Taiwan remains uh, as a, a kind of de facto uh, independent uh, democratic uh, society, strong uh, capitalist market economy. Taiwan itself has uh, very substantial and increasing uh, economic ties with the mainland of China. Uh, and that China itself would develop in a more democratic direction so that eventually these two societies work out a modus vivendi between themselves uh, which establishes a kind of a, a framework that is uh, democratic, increasingly so, uh, with rapidly growing economies and integration with the U.S. Uh, in a regional and, and global economy. And actually, that's the bet that the United States made. I mean, um, President Clinton said back in the 90s, globalization is America's strategy. President Bush has repeated uh, that uh, concept in, in different words. But the whole point is that, that America's relationship with China uh, is to a great extent based on the following kind of syllogism. And that is that uh, economic development, the countries getting rich, leads them to become more liberal and more democratic. Uh, the point of bringing China into the World Trade Organization, of extending most favored nation treatment to China, was to globalize China and through globalization induce it to be more liberal and more democratic. And of course, the end of the syllogism is that when countries become democratic, they don't go to war with each other. So our strategy has been to become more integrated with China, more dependent economically on China as a way of making China more democratic and as a way of uh, eventually indirectly muting this conflict between Taiwan and the mainland of China. What stands in the way of the ultimate working out of that strategy? Well, two things. One, as Ted has so, so eloquently pointed out, is the, uh, the kind of fantasy land that the U.S. Uh, kind of engenders and allows to exist in Taiwan. That is, um, with the expectation uh, in Taiwan that the United States will uh, ultimately uh, do whatever it takes to defend Taiwan, uh, this creates in, in I, I think, in the, as Ted has pointed out, uh, a sentiment in Taiwan that we can kind of have it all. We can be uh, uh, <clears throat> democratic and we can be independent, but we can also be economically more integrated with China because the Americans are going to are going to keep everything cool. Uh, and again, coming back to this issue of what is America really willing to sacrifice for Taiwan, seems to me that's a bit of a fantasy land, which is engendered by 
our own commitments or our own statements, as Ted says. There's a second uh, element here which, which strikes me as really uh, funny and, and uh, kind of contradictory, and that is that our strategy has been to, to promote globalization and economic integration with China as a way of democratizing China, and yet, what we're seeing, and, and we're seeing that this is kind of working because any of you who go to China know that it's a lot more liberal, open place today than it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, but one of the things we see is that the Chinese regime is, is trying to, to, to offset this, and particularly by controlling, continuing to control the flow of technology, particularly on the Internet. Uh, the fact that the Chinese regime goes to such lengths to try to control the internet tells you that the strategy of globalization is kind of working, but yet at the same time we find the Chinese regime is able to co-opt global companies, including American companies, to help it control the internet. And the US government says nothing. So my thought is that, that uh, the way forward here is precisely for the U.S. to continue following the strategy of globalization that has followed, but to really mean it, uh, and at the same time uh, to take seriously Ted's suggestion of, of uh, correcting the fantasy land uh, sentiment. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you, Richard and Clyde. Um, Ted, uh, there were a number of points I wonder if you wanted to respond just very quickly, and uh, we'll leave some time for questions. I will respond uh, very briefly because I do want to leave uh, the maximum amount of time for audience participation. I want to thank uh, both Richard and Clyde for some very thoughtful comments. I'd like to address uh, just two points that Richard made and one that Clyde made. Um, first of all, with Richard's comment uh, about whether Taiwan would spend uh, what was necessary to build an adequate defense to deter Beijing on its own, whether it's even capable of doing that. That's a tremendously important question. I'm not sure of the answer to it. Uh, I do think that we would see more responsible behavior in the Taiwanese legislature than what we have seen the past several years with the KMT and the PFP blocking the special defense budget to buy the weapons the United States offered in 2001. That is incredibly irresponsible behavior, but again, I think uh, that is behavior that is based on the expectation that Taiwan's defense efforts don't matter that much. What really matters is the U.S. defense commitment. If that commitment were not there, I think you would see very different calculations. <laughs> Secondly, uh, the point that Richard made about whether it is politically saleable to have the change in policy that I recommend, given the uh, domestic attitudes in the United States. And I have to admit it's a long shot. I think the biggest, most significant change that has taken place with regard to the Taiwan issue since the early 1990s is the democratization of Taiwan. If Taiwan were simply the old Republic of China under the uh, KMT one-party rule, and Beijing decided to use force against that entity. I'm not sure in the absence of a Cold War setting, 
uh, the American people would care very much one way or the other. But with Taiwan being a vibrant capitalist democracy, there is going to be a huge sentiment in the United States to come to Taiwan's aid. My th argument, though, is that it is simply too dangerous to do that, however fond uh, we are of the Taiwanese, and that we better be realistic about what we can and cannot accomplish with regard to the Taiwan issue. The point that Clyde made is related to this, this last point, and that is However important Taiwan is to the United States, it is a lot more important to the PRC. And that is the crucial point. A lot of people, even experts on deterrence theory, tend to miss that point. They look at balance of forces, and the country that has the most capable force should be able to deter a country that has a less capable force. All things being equal, that's true. But there is another factor that is vitally important, and that is the balance of intensity or the balance of fervor. In other words, the importance of the stake, to the issue at stake, to the status quo power and the challenging power. And I'm afraid what we have with Taiwan is that Taiwan is a critically important issue to the PRC. And however important you think Taiwan is to the United States, it is something less than that to Washington and to the American people. That leads to challenges. And I think we cannot have a security commitment implied or explicit to Taiwan based on the assumption that Beijing will never challenge that. That would be, I believe, a fatal mistake. Because I think at some point, at some point, Beijing is going to challenge that commitment. <clears throat> okay. Thank you, Ted. Uh, we have at least 20 minutes. I may exercise my discretion because we did start a little late, but uh, time for questions. Please, uh, three rules here, Cato. Uh, one, wait for the microphone. Two, identify yourself and your affiliation. And three, most importantly, please keep it short and keep it in the form of a question. So with that, um, I have a hand here. Go ahead, right there. Hey, my name is uh, Garrett Vanderwees. I work for the Formosan Association for Public Affairs. A uh, key argument of your uh, thesis is that Taiwan is not of strategic interest to the U.S. I would like to take issue with that. Uh, Taiwan straddles the uh, sea lanes uh, between uh, Korea and uh, Japan and Southeast Asia. Uh, through which most of the trade in uh, in uh, East Asia goes. So these are lifelines for those countries. If the U.S. would give up on Taiwan, it would also give up on uh, Japan and Korea. Uh, secondly, some scholars, in particular Alan Wackman up in uh, Boston, he argues that uh, China views Taiwan as a strategic location in its thrust to become a blue water navy and in its thrust to become a world power and challenging the United States in that. Uh, according to this thesis, China would not be content to be a regional power. What would be your comment on that? Okay, to take the last point first, uh, I have no idea what China's ultimate ambitions are. If one wants to look, let's say, a half a century or a century from now, uh, China may very well have ambitions to be a truly global power. I never implied that Taiwan it was of no strategic importance to the United States. 
I simply argue that it is not so important that the United States ought to risk war with the PRC, and particularly risk war with the PRC as uh, China's economic and military strength continues to grow, that the risk to the United States continues to rise, and it will reach the point fairly soon, if it hasn't already, where the risks vastly outweigh any potential reward. Uh, if uh, Taiwan's strategic importance um, is so critical to Japan and South Korea, uh, then I suggest strongly that Japan and South Korea begin to make plans to do something about that and not expect the United States to take care of that problem for them. Uh, Japan is beginning to take an interest in the Taiwan issue. The South Koreans, on the other hand, seem absolutely determined to remain on the sidelines in the event of any kind of uh, confrontation between the United States and the PRC over Taiwan. I do have a couple questions out here, and then I'll get folks in the back row. So can I get um, there's a question here, and then I'll get you next. Sir. Right. Yes, um, uh, Bill DeBaghi, Maxima International. Um, unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> I'm not trying to in any way uh, color your argument. I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. But unfortunately, last night I saw late in the hour the, the start of World War II, and uh, the, the big issue was the Sudetenland. And uh, the great powers, uh, England and France, decided that Czechoslovakia was not uh, strategically important and not within its core uh, importance to defend, but we know what happened. And, and I'm, perhaps your argument is not the same, but I, I seem to think that it is. Is there a question there? Or? The question is, is, is that not a also a good parallel? Uh, Hawaii was a, an interesting okay. parallel. But so is there a parallel? In other words, do we, don't we have a lot to lose? In other words, if China is willing to risk war, for right. its interest, and okay. we are not, is that not, in fact, a, uh, the wrong policy? Parallel between Taiwan and uh, Sudetenland. Yeah, the Sudetenland. Okay, that actually uh, reminds me of a comment I've made on numerous occasions that people who overuse the Vietnam analogy ought to be guilty of a, a Class A misdemeanor, but people who use the overused, vastly, horribly overused World War II analogy ought to be uh, convicted of a felony. Um, you know, to some people, it's always 1938 somewhere. Uh, but I think there is a huge difference between a malignantly expansionist power like Nazi Germany and a conventional great power like China. Had Germany in 1938 been a conventional great power, uh, it might have had the similar result with the Sudetenland, and it would have had no larger impact whatsoever. It was the fact that Hitler had unlimited expansionist ambitions that made the Sudetenland simply an hors d'oeuvre in a much larger meal. I don't see that that's necessarily true with the PRC. The PRC regards Taiwan as a very special issue. That doesn't mean that reacquiring uh, Taiwan would necessarily lead to an expansionist binge by China across the Pacific or anywhere else. Uh, that, that simply doesn't apply. Uh, question right here, and then I'll get over here. Uh, yes, uh, Mark Stokes. Um, like Richard, a former policy wonk in the Pentagon for seven years on Taiwan issues. Uh, four quick questions. Very quick. Very quick. Very quick. Four? Four. Um, I'll give you yes. two. I'll give you two. Two. Uh, okay. Uh, two, two quick questions. Um, first of all, um, 
Do you think the U.S. actually could intervene today, given the nature of PRC military modernization and their strategy in terms of uh, uh, um, basically preemptive war to be able to resolve the, their, the situation politically and economically before the U.S. can even make a decision to intervene? That's question number one. Number two, um, what do Taiwan military planners believe about assumptions on U.S. intervention? My impression is they believe in what's called Sili Fang Wei, which is independent defense. They do not assume U.S. intervention. Uh, number three, last two, question. Two good questions. Oh, two okay. good oh, questions. Those are two good questions. Good. good. Ted? Okay. And actually, I think Richard and Clyde, uh, Richard, you may want to weigh in this too, but let's yeah. have Ted to begin. I think the, uh, the United States certainly could intervene today and do so successfully. My judgment is that we would find it more difficult than we assume that we would, even today. Uh, a decade from now, whether we would be able to intervene successfully is very much an open question, given the trends in uh, military modernization and development with the uh, PRC. I'm not, I, I'm not privy to the inner workings of the Taiwanese military establishment. I can only base my conclusions on public statements by Taiwanese officials, and that they attach great importance to the willingness of the United States to intervene on Taiwan's behalf. Their belief is that they have to provide enough of a defense to delay any kind of uh, PRC success long enough so that the United States can bring its military power to bear effectively in the Taiwan Strait. Richard, did you want to comment on that at all? Um, the answer to the first question is that defend depends very much on the scenario. Uh, some uh, uh, in some scenarios, the United States might not have time to intervene. However, uh, in those scenarios, the risk of failure would be very, very high. Uh, failure, success is not assured as much as in others. Um, and the second one, for conservative war planners, they have to assume that we would not intervene. Uh, the gentleman over there had his hand up first and uh, okay. denied. All right, I'll get him in just one second. Could I get him and then I'll get, uh, get him? <laughs> Excuse me. Eric McVeigh with the Institute of Foreign Policy Analysis. I'd be interested in Richard's reaction to uh, how Japan would react to a renunciation by the U.S. of uh, uh, intent to defend Taiwan. And for uh, Ted and Richard, um, I wonder if the two April 2001 package, the items that we were going to sell Taiwan, are in fact those that uh, – would work effectively for the defense of Taiwan, or whether that issue is not more complicated than that? Okay, good questions. Then I'll get up here. Um, uh, on the first question, I think that um, um, you sort of picking up on my last question, you know, how would uh, a renunciation of a security commitment affect our security posture in East Asia? I think that this would have profound effect on. Uh, on Japan and on the direction of our uh, on the evolution of the U.S.-Japan alliance because that is premised on uh, sort of a robust security posture um, and uh, would call into question I think so Ted, do you want to ask you the second question? The second question About, was, had to do with the uh, the, the weapons yeah. that were being d debated. Yeah, I in actually had some uh, 
some qualms about the nature of the uh, the package that was offered, particularly the diesel submarines. I'm not sure that's the best use of defense dollars. Um, so the package, I think, could have been better conceived, but still uh, this inexcusable delay, uh, multi-year delay again with uh, still no certainty that, uh, that even a downsized package is going to be approved, I, I find very disturbing. Uh, that's uh, an attitude of free riding, I think, that is particularly unhealthy. I'm not sure what Japan's reaction would be. I think that would be heavily dependent on about the rest of U.S. policy in East Asia and how we verbalize that to Tokyo. If we made it clear to Tokyo that we felt that Taiwan was simply a bridge too far in terms of a U.S. security commitment in East Asia, uh, I think Japan might very well accept that and not conclude that this is a wholesale abandonment of the U.S. position in East Asia. But you're right, that would, I think, have to be very carefully managed to make sure that this isn't uh, regarded as um, the U.S. conceding PRC hegemony in East Asia. I, d I don't want to see that either. I think that would uh, be unduly tempting for some, uh, for some people in Beijing. Just to comment on Japan, I, uh, I'm less concerned about Japan. I think, one, the Japanese have never... Um, Understood really uh, our uh, strong commitment to Taiwan. I think I think many Japanese have often uh, wondered, you know, what it is we, we think we're doing, uh, and have seen it really in some ways as, as 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 detracting. You know, it's kind of distracting the U.S. from the main game, which is of course protecting Japan and and Northeast Asia. Uh, and so I, I I don't think the Japanese would be that biggest concern. Okay. Uh, in uh, in fairness, Richard... Uh, uh, Not to me. Well, no, I know. Uh, right here. I do need to get people in the back. I always am accused of not getting people in the back, so I, I will get people in the back. Ken Dillon, Spectrum Bioscience, for any one of the three speakers. Uh, what if the U.S. would establish it as a high priority to go for a free trade agreement with Taiwan uh, with the idea being that it, it would be at least as important from a political standpoint and with a diplomatically phrased clause in that free trade agreement that would say that in the event that Taiwan would go for independence, this treaty, this agreement would be abrogated. Okay. Um, the, the thought just flashed across my mind a, a free trade agreement between Kaho'olawe and China. Uh, how would that go down? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I guess I, I look at we already have essentially free trade with Taiwan. Uh, I don't know what a free trade agreement with Taiwan would do in terms of practical terms economically that we don't pretty much already have. Uh, probably some things we could get, but I think it would be such a uh, a uh, slap in the face to, to mainland China that uh, we precipitate what, we, what we're trying to avoid. Um, one consequence of a free trade area with Taiwan was that, is that it would um, strengthen the will of other countries in East Asia uh, to do their own free trade areas uh, with Taiwan, which would be very much to Taiwan's advantage. Uh, and Taiwan is permitted under the rules of the WTO uh, to do their own separate free trade areas. And uh, uh, that 
would help them both in sort of political and economic terms. I think uh, um, an implied uh, codicil to such an arrangement, uh, and it would, I think it would only need to be implied, w is that this is in the context of, of political restraint on Taiwan's part. Okay. Yeah, I think it would strengthen the economic linkages, but again, as I emphasized in my presentation, I don't think this issue will ultimately be decided by economic factors. I think what we have going are uh, nationalist factors, emotional factors, and those will be the ones that will be decisive in the long run. Okay. Uh, can I get some in the back? Sorry. i got to get some in the back because these people have been very patient. Uh, right there to the left. Right there. Yep. Got about, about 10 minutes, so please make it quick. Uh, Yi Danxuan, I'm from uh, the Huanghua Gang magazine. My question is to uh, the writer and the uh, two commentators. Can U.S. benefit from uh, democracy in China? If the answer is yes, which one is bigger? The benefit of uh, independent Taiwan or the benefit of uh, um, unification between a democratic Taiwan and democratic China? Which one is bigger? Okay. Well, there's no question the United States would like to see uh, the PRC become uh, fully democratic in a Western sense. That, that's our ultimate goal. Um, at the same time, I think from America's uh, strategic calculations, we would like to see the separation between Taiwan and the mainland continue, even if the PRC became democratic, although we'd be less opposed to reunification under those circumstances. But the current U.S. policy is pretty clear. We'd like to see the status quo go on forever. <laughs> and people in the PRC are not stupid. They realize that. And that the U.S. is not at all sympathetic to reunification under any circumstances. The problem with U.S. policy is simply that it's increasingly clear that the status quo is not going to go on forever. There are factors pushing for change both in Taiwan and the mainland, and something's going to give. Okay. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Richard. Um, there, uh, political scientists tell us that um, uh, there is a period of sort of danger uh, when a country has recently become democratic, uh, that uh, the population that affects the decisions of leaders in a newly democratic country is often quite nationalistic and that can lead to more uh, aggressive behavior on the part of the state. Um, on, on the issue of what the United States wants, um, the stated position of the United States government, whether you believe it or not, uh, I happen to believe it, uh, having worked there, uh, <laughs> is that we don't care about outcomes, uh, whether uh, unification or preservation of the status quo. Um, it, what we care about is process, uh, that it occur peacefully. If the people of, the, of Taiwan decided uh, to accept unification based on one country, two systems, uh, that's fine with us, uh, as long as it occurs peacefully. Now, as a practical matter, that's not going to happen. Um, if they accepted a confederation, if PRC was willing to offer it, that's fine too. Okay, time for a few more questions in the back, uh, right here uh, at the rail there. Yes, take the take the uh, mic, Marty. Oh, thank you. 
Martin Seif, United <coughs> Press International. Uh, instead of a much-used-to-the-death analogy of World War II, I'd like uh, Dr. Carpenter to comment on a never-commented-on analogy with World War II. Uh, Japan never dared to confront Britain militarily. Until Britain was fully stretched against Germany, it never dared to swallow the French and Netherlands empires in the Far East until they were conquered by Germany. Uh, the United States was certainly overwhelming in its uh, military superiority to China, but were committed in Iraq. We may be committed in Iran. I would like to ask Dr. Carpenter, does he think there's a danger that if our commitments become too extensive elsewhere, that the Chinese might then turn on the screws on Taiwan and things could escalate out of control? That's an excellent question. Um, certainly it would have to affect calculations in Beijing if the United States becomes ever more strategically overextended. And you're quite right. We already have a major commitment in Iraq. Uh, the war drums are beating with regard to Iran, which would be, uh, I think, an even more difficult undertaking and one that would be uh, a heavy burden for our air power which Iraq is not. Iraq basically ties down our ground forces. But what would be relevant in the Taiwan issue is the ability of the United States to project its air and naval forces. If we're tied down with regard to Iran, we're going to find a, a, a very extensive commitment of air and naval power there. Um, you know, if, if we begin to add to all of our commitments, and there are some circles in the United States who seem to be the Will Rogers of warfare. They've never met a war they didn't like. And if they have their way, I think at some point uh, smarter elements in Beijing are going to conclude the U.S. is uh, vastly overextended. It's simply not going to be able to fulfill its commitment to Taiwan, even if it wants to. And that would be a very tempting time to test that commitment. Um, Ted is right about the air and naval issue. I would also make uh, a very simple point, and that is that uh, if one – looks at the ways in which, um, hypothetically, Taiwan in the next few years might challenge Taiwan's fun China's fundamental interests, uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, the, the most obvious one is changing the Constitution uh, in ways that, that cut the cord between Taiwan and the state called China. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, the consensus is not there. Uh, and China understands this. And as long as China has hope that unification is possible uh, through uh, economic convergence, through political attrition, uh, it sees no need uh, to uh, use the military option. Okay. Uh, here... And then last question there. Please make it quick. Someone from Taiwan. Yes. Let, let the oh, people I'm of sorry. Taiwan have a voice. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, I uh, had recognized this gentleman uh, representing, uh, uh, but uh, please, go ahead. Uh, Raghubir Goyal from India Globe and Asia Today, covering the White House, Pentagon, and the State Department. What message do you think you have for the administration as for expansion of China, military expansion of China is growing, including here in the neighboring, in the backyard of the United States? Should U.S. worry about China's military expansion or India, or who should worry? And also the uh, billions of dollars of uh, trade deficit with the United States. Is it an economic war or a military war? Okay, first of all, in terms of... Uh 
Uh, in terms of Asia, what I would like to see ultimately is a fairly stable balance of power uh, involving the PRC on one side and Japan and India on the other. I think that has uh, at least the potential to be a fairly stable situation. I don't worry unduly about China's actions, let's say, in Venezuela or Sudan. Um, I think they're basing their policy on a lot of faulty assumptions about energy inter ind independence uh, that most economists now realize are faulty. Um, and this, this can cause a bit of mischief, but it doesn't really challenge fundamental American interests. Okay. Sir? Thank you. Please wait for the microphone, and then I will get to you for last. Please make it quick. Okay. The title of uh, Mr. Carpenter's book uh, seems to be so sensational. Uh, it's like a Leninist. War is inevitable. A Leninist. Uh, well, anyway, it's uh, unfair with Taiwan, holding Taiwan responsible for coming war between United States and China. And I really disagree, uh, disagree with that. Suppose Taiwan does not, does not exist today. Is there still issues that might uh, complicate relation between United States and China. Now, we have been talking about uh, how to accommodate or cope with a rising China. That's really the issue. And I, I uh, believe that uh, well, Taiwan is not a troublemaker. China is. We don't so have 800 missiles Your question is? China. Your okay. question is? All right. My question is really, is that thesis correct or not? <laughs> is Taiwan really uh, responsible or China's responsible? China that's, has 800 missile targeted in Taiwan. Why you okay. say that uh, Taiwan that's a is very, responsible? That's a very simple question. Is your thesis correct or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to prejudge whether a crisis could break out because of actions by Taiwan or the PRC. The scenario that I use in the book, Taiwan basically miscalculates, reaches a little too far. Beijing reacts very badly, very belligerently, and a conflict breaks out. But that's only one scenario among many, many possibilities. One could see a case where the PRC simply decides that the time is right to try to uh, coerce Taiwan, and that, again, that the U.S. perhaps is overcommitted, and takes that kind of action. Um, if the Taiwan issue went away tomorrow, however it would be solved, we would still have some problems with the PRC. I, I acknowledge that, that rising great powers tend to be difficult to deal with. Uh, Germany and Japan, for obvious uh, examples, in the early 20th century were extraordinarily different. Um, even World War One, Germany, World War One. Um, the United States was not the easiest neighbor to deal with in the 19th century and early 20th centuries. So even conventional rising great powers can cause some problems. I just wanted to draw the distinction. I don't see the PRC as the rebirth of Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. I think we're dealing with a conventional great power. We will have difficulties from time to time with that. But if it were not for the Taiwan issue, I don't see anything likely to lead to war. The Taiwan issue is one big exception. Okay, last question. Please make it quick. Uh, I'm Mike Fonte. I'm the Democratic Progressive Party liaison here. I first went to Taiwan in 67, and I've known a long parade of the activists in Taiwan who worked very hard to get democracy today in Taiwan. And I guess that's the element I don't hear echoed quite so much here. It seems to me that our current policy, or so Mr. Bush says anyhow, is to promote democracy. And I wonder where democracy promotion fits into your understanding of the process. Okay, thank you. 
Well, I make a distinction between promoting democracy, expressing enthusiasm for democracy, and being willing to go to war and risk the lives of American military personnel to defend democracy. Um, I believe that that kind of risk should be incurred only when there are vital strategic interests at stake, uh, even if a country is democratic. You know, I'm fond, for example, of the Baltic republics that are democratic, but I'm also not willing to risk going to war with Russia at some point in the future to defend the security of those three small states on Russia's border. That's simply a risk that is excessive for the United States to incur. Can I comment just a moment because um, Very interesting. You made this point already. Front page story in the today's Financial Times, Google agrees to censor the Internet in China. If you want democracy, uncensored Google in China. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you all very much. Please a round of applause for all the speakers. Thank you for your patience. Um, there is uh, lunch upstairs in the Winter Garden. Uh, please help yourself. Ted will also be available to sign copies of his book. Uh, just give him a couple minutes uh, to make his way up to the uh, first floor. Thank you.